Guys, welcome back to the Relax Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Super glad that you're here today. We've got an absolute gun of an athlete on the show today. I've got to get her biography up here on the screen because it's just too much to say. Um, I'm going to just, I'm going to leave a whole heap of stuff out, but it, this is going to paint a bit of a picture of the quality of the guests that we have on here today. Her name is Emma Carney. She's a former Australian professional triathlete and two-time world triathlon champion. She is one of a few triathlons in the world to have won two ITU titles. Um, she's just a, gang, a gangster on the triathlon scene. She's an Australian Hall of Famer. Uh, she started out in the distance running world. She was a really keen, passionate distance runner with goals to run at the Olympic Games. But then, long story short, she uh, she stumbled across the sport of triathlon and seemed to stumble in a pretty impressive way uh, based on the things that I just told you. So, Matt, what I love about Emma Carney is she's just a go-getter. Uh, she had she was no holds barred. She told us some of the mind games that she played, her race strategies, her training style. Uh, there is so much to take away from this podcast. So I, uh, I know I loved it. I know you're going to love it as well. So make sure you shoot her a bit of love on social media if you do enjoy it. Guys, heads up, little reminder for you as well. If you're not a member over at Relaxed, running just yet make sure you go and check it out relaxrunning.com it's the relaxed running membership gives you access to a wide range of things but the biggest thing the most popular thing that we're doing at the moment is myself working with athletes from all sports triathlon and running and football at wherever else is you find yourself with technique analysis so if you're trying to develop a more efficient technique i've been working at it looking at it for years and be more than happy to help you correct some of those little errors in your form to help you move more effortlessly more efficiently throughout the running in whatever the sport that you play we also have a training programs from the 5k to the marathon beginner to advanced we've got an experts corner video library where uh, the best in the business answer members questions about all things running that's just a little part of it as well we've also got the members forum for you to jump on and find out what athletes all around australia are doing who are a part of the membership so that's relaxed running dot com and uh, check out the relaxed running membership but guys let me get out of your way because you're in for an absolute treat now with absolute australian star of the triathlon world emma carney Hey, um, hey, I guess there's an interesting point to get started. How's uh, how's homeschool treating you? Because I was laughing just as I said, hey, we're still good for, for this weekend. You said, well, you know what? I'm, I've been doing homeschool with my grade five kid who's got the attention span of what I interpreted to be myself at 22. I thought that the the last thing potentially you want to do is another Skype interview. And, and yet here we are. So, hey, I don't take for granted how much of a commitment this is. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, dear old Jack, grade five at Wesley. And uh, Wesley is doing its – I went to Wesley as well. If you, You'd know that if you received my book by now. Um, yeah, they're doing as much as they can to educate the kids. But I think they're also – it's like, you know, a two-way thing. The kids want to be need to want to be educated and um, <laughs> Jack's not that into it. And uh, on Fridays, I think everything is due. And um, last – so what, a couple of days ago, I said to Jack, okay, have you done all your work? He said, yeah, no worries. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to go coaching. And if you want to come with me, bring the dog and, you know, run around the oval or whatever. 
And I get an email out there from his teacher, where's Jack? He hasn't submitted any work. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so that's homeschooling. That's Nothing. so funny. Yeah, you're definitely not in that by yourself. As I mentioned just before I hit record, I do a little bit of work with a, a primary school group of kids out in Torquay. And uh, just last week, we were back, last Friday, we were, we were back in there and I was there for a couple of hours. And I said to a few of the kids, I said, oh, how did lockdown go for you? And they say it was so good. One of the girls goes, I had all my work done by Tuesday. I said, what do you mean? She goes, no, they just post the whole week worth of work on the, uh, on the website that we use. And oh. if you can work quickly, we can get through it quickly. And I thought, oh, mate, so, so you just had like a little interim in holiday. So there's so many different, uh, there's so many different movements and, and little arm twists going on that the kids are making just to get out of doing work. So I don't think Jack's in it by himself. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't even know if a week really matters anyway in grade five, to be honest. Yeah, it's probably a good point. It's probably a good point. I think you live for recess and lunch in year five, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and lockdowns now. Oh, my gosh. I was just saying before we started as well, we could do a whole podcast of that, about that. But you've got one of your athletes racing up on the Gold Coast, and I'm aware of time, so I'm going to I'm gonna jump into it with you. Um, I know you're a, you're a veteran at podcasts at the moment because I've listened to quite a few to try and get organised for today. I, had a, I really enjoyed yours with um, Brad Beer on the Physical Performance Show. That was a really oh, good yeah. chat between you two. Um, but, uh, but what I was really curious about, and obviously this is a, a, a more distance running based background. I know there's a few triathletes who tune in as well. Um, uh, but you were saying that before you got into your, uh, your triathlon scene, you, you, you were raised as a, as a distance runner. Yeah, I, so I was a distance runner and, um, to be completely honest, uh, the sport of athletics is my true love of, of sport. And, um, so I ran as a kid at school. I, I've already mentioned I went to Wesley and, you know, that's a sport is required in your education. So I discovered um, running when I was in grade four and really enjoyed it. And I was very good at, you know, the typical sports that we played as girls in those days, um, softball, uh, netball. Um, but what I was really, really poor at was team teamwork. So, you know, as a grade four, well, well from the from day dot, I've always played to win. So team sports frustrated me, and I was alleged at, in grade three to have um, thrown the ball at people and not to them. <laughs> so I was basically sconing my teammates on the head if they didn't weren't playing to win. So I got myself banned from team sports at school, and the school said, "Look, it's not all about winning." And they could see that I just had no idea what they were talking about. So they said, "Well, perhaps you should just stick with running." So I did cross country and ATHS. Um, you know, like typical cross-country distances in those days was 3K, 4K as a, as a junior. And I was 4, 8 and 15 on the track. And I was fortunate that my dad worked at Adidas and then he went on to work at Nike. And I saw that, you know, in the sport of athletics, you could, um, that could be a career. And, you know, you've got a picture of Prefontaine behind you. Hey, and, good you know, observation. I, I was wondering whether you'd know who that was. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, all those stories and all those legends of athletics, you know, I grew up reading those stories and I wanted to be a part of that. But um, as it turned out, I was probably a better triathlete than I was runner. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting transition, isn't it? Because I know there's a lot of... Um... I've heard of a lot of athletes. Uh, Craig Mottram came from a triathlon background. I think he, he sort of went in the reverse, came from triathlon as a junior, excelled at the running, and then I know he had a little bit of a crack going back into triathlon 
sort of in the latter stages of his career. But it's it's always interesting to see who makes that transition well because uh, I don't know, like I, I'm not sure how controversial this this topic is, but I feel like there's a little bit of consensus. Well, Mottram actually told me this, that if you can run, he reckons you can ride pretty well. You've just got to get used to that transition element of, you know, being on the bike. And uh, I, I don't know if that's true, whether you'd shake your head or well, nod your head of, at that. But. It kind of depends. I mean, there's some swim runners out there and they were shocking on the bike. So it, it does depend on, on the type of athlete you are. Generally, a runner can ride, and generally, a runner, a fast runner, won't be a fast swimmer. But then there's always differences in those rules. But um, when I when I took up triathlon, so I was I was already running for Australia, so I'd made a couple of world cross teams, a couple of Ekadens. Um, one of the Ekadens we medalled in Chiba, so it was the first time a women's team had. So I was running, you know, pretty well. But there's always a big jump from junior to senior. And, you know, running sub 9, 10 for a 3K, you know, if I wanted to go and run in the Olympics, for example, I had to run a sub 8.40. So, you know, you've got to find 30 to 40 seconds. Um, and I'm not the most patient person. <laughs> Dad being at Nike, you know, he'd sort of seen triathlon start to pop up and he said to me, you know, why don't you try a local triathlon? And, you know, when I did sort of make the move to triathlon, it was really seen as a bit of a joke sport. A triathlete was someone who wasn't really that good at anything. And, you know, my transition to triathlon was very, very quick. The first international race I did was a world championship and I won it. And it was sort of like, oh, see how easy it is. You know, Emma Carney can just take it up and be the best in the world. So it was um, a number of athletes started to sort of think, okay, well, maybe we'll have a dip. And... You do have to be international level at, at two sports and national level at the third. So it's sort of, it, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those sports where it's harder than it looks because sometimes triathlon racing is quite ugly, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's not a surprise to me. It's interesting how quickly you made that transition, like being world-class at two sport and national at the, at the other. Like, had you been doing any swimming or cycling to sort of accommodate or help out during your running training as a cross-training thing? Or how did you take to that so quickly? I was just a typical Aussie kid. You know, I'd swum, bike and run as a kid and mucked around and done house sport and, um, you know, not completely rubbish at, at any of them. So the local race that I did was a race down at Elwood. And as it turns out, I was pretty pretty bad in the swim. I lost about seven minutes and I spent the whole bike just riding and trying to work out where I was because the triathlon was so messy to me. I'd come from a, you know, a track background or a cross-country background where you knew exactly where your competitors were. In a triathlon, there's just people everywhere. So I found it very confusing, but I just knew that if I got to the run and ran flat out and asked every girl that I passed, are you winning, <laughs> I should finally get to the girl that said, yes, overtake her and win. And that was my race plan, and I, I pulled that off. Now, Dad, being very black and white, he said to me a couple of days later, look, I've bought some international magazines. I reckon if you learnt to swim, you'd be the best triathlete in the world. Um, and so then we put a plan together and we found some coaches that would work on the swim and the bike. And the swim, you know, I was swimming 30 to 35K a week. So it was a lot of work. And while, you know, it's just like everything in sport, it, from the outside it looked like it was a really quick journey, but it was... A hell of a lot of work behind all that. Um, but, yeah, I did the summer season, qualified for the team, 
rather than go overseas and race, I stayed at home, trained harder, and um, debuted at Worlds and, and won. Bloody hell. So how did you and your old man, like I know you said he was involved with uh, with Nike and Adidas, but that's a that's a fairly broad sort of scale of things. Was that directly with triathlon? Because the idea of coming from a running background and assuming you know how to create a plan for triathlon seems like a pretty bold move, which I feel like having read enough of your stuff doesn't surprise me about your character now, but it's, uh, I guess it takes a lot of confidence and a, a, and a little bit of expertise to know which direction to take the training because it's, it's obviously significantly different incorporating some bike and some swimming work in amongst the running training as well. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, Dad's very black and white and if, if he can work things out in figures and numbers, it'll work. And I'm, I always wanted to be a world-class athlete. So um, I wasn't going to do anything sort of half-baked. So if I could see something on paper was possible, I wasn't going to worry about whether I could or couldn't. I was just going to go for it. And um, I actually write about it in my book. So we haven't mentioned the name of my book, Hardwired, Life, Death and Triathlon. Um, I actually write about how we... You know, because originally we had to find a swim coach. There's a lot of really, really top swim coaches in Australia, and we would, you know, can you teach me to swim? I need to win a world title in 18 months' time. So, you know, they were like, I'll oh, get off my pool deck. <laughs> so, um, you know, we found this lady, Alwyn Barrett, and we actually asked Raylene Boyle. So she's a, a legend of running. She was at Nike. Um, not quite sure what her role was, but she was at <laughs> Nike. <laughs> just there as a, as a token gun. Yeah, she's just been probably hanging out in the railing ballroom. Um, she came up with, because her brother cycled in the Olympics, so she knew cycling, so she came up with a swim and a bike coach. And these were two people that really worked on skill. As it turns out, my cycling was probably better than my triathlon, and if I'd stuck, stuck with cycling, I um, I would have done very well in that as well. So, you know, I was... Very good at cycling and running, ordinary at swimming, but um, I got to the stage where I could minimise the damage in the swim. That's handy. That's handy. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people. So one of my friends, I don't know if you've heard the name Brenton Ford before. He runs a, a coaching oh, yeah, clinic. Yeah. yeah, effortless swimming. He's a good friend of mine. He yep. actually he lives in Torquay himself now, and uh, he was saying that the, the good news for a, uh, this is more over the the Ironman distance of triathlon is that if you look at the amount of time that you're running and you're actually on the bike in comparison to how long you're swimming for, it's not a bad one just to have to try and grind your way through. Like if you're going to suck at one event, like try and minimise the damage in the uh, in yeah. the swim. So what was the, the journey like that for you? Did you do a lot of work focusing on technique and things like that? Or were you like, you know what, I'm just going to put in the hard work and try and do the best I can to minimise the damage and, and really focus on developing the strength in the other two weeks? It, well, it was maximising the strength in the bike and run. So, you know, I could work on the swim... You know, I could do 70K a week and find an extra 20 seconds or I could work in the swim. I worked on technique and speed. So a triathlon swim, for example, is the first 300 metres is normally the first can and or the first turn boy. And so the first turn boy is generally where the first punch-up is because you've all got to, you know. So you need to have that first initial speed to get to that front pack or near that front pack. And the, the closer I could get to the front was going to minimise the damage. So that's what I needed. I didn't need to go and flog myself and get myself fit because I was already fit. And the, while there is a limited amount of, um, you know, for example, you don't train on the bike to run fast, 
while you can't really do that, what you can do is carry over fitness. So general fitness can be carried across. Um, so that was, that was the sort of theories we worked on. And we did things, and even to this day, I coach high-performance triathlon, and I don't practice running off the bike because I don't want to waste my time practicing bad running. Yeah. You know, it hurts. Um, if you want to minimise the impact of the bike on your run, make sure you fit on the bike because then you'll run better off it. And my theory was always just from how I felt because a lot of it was self-coaching as well. A lot of it, you know, if I was running well, I rode well, but my ride would never contribute to running fast. Ah, that's so interesting. <laughs> that's so funny. So like as very, a... Yeah, it's all very one way. It's really interesting that you hear you say that because in my limited knowledge of the triathlon world, one thing that I would have thought I knew is that if you wanted to be good at running off the uh, off the bike, you've got to practice running off the bike. But I did a few when I was a junior, and the only thing that I ever noticed was how jelly my legs would feel coming off the yeah. bike, which is no surprise to anyone who's tried it before. But uh, so so for, for the athletes who are sort of coming into that scene feeling a little unnatural, feeling a bit jelly-legged, would like your own sense of confidence just come from the fact that you're putting the, the work on the bike and on the run training and just get used to the fact you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit, you know, feel all over the place for the first couple of hundred metres off the bike? Or how did you deal with that headspace of, of just that jelly, uh, that jelly leg start to a run? Well, it's kind of like, um, it's like racing, you know, you don't get to a race, start racing, it hurts and go, oh God, I didn't think it would hurt. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you get off the bike and start running and you, you know it, you're going to feel like rubbish. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to keep practicing feeling like rubbish. Um, some people that I coach, they can't get their head around that. And so I'll say, okay, rather than get off the bike and run for an hour and hate yourself for an hour, get off the bike and go and do eight 400s at a certain pace. So you're practicing running at a better pace you're practicing better technique, you're less likely to get injured and you possibly hate yourself less. <laughs> See, this is, one thing I, this is one thing that you've mentioned about your dad as well. Like he was very black and white with his approach to, I don't know if it was just training or just life in general, but I feel like there's a real, uh, it's, it, I feel like uh, simplistic is an understatement or a, it, sounds, it sounds too condescending, but there's a really clear um, sort of just outcome-focused approach to what it is that yeah. you're doing. Like it's so easy. I know in the distance running world, I was the king of, of uh, without conscious effort to restrain it, the king of overcomplicating things that were really quite simple. Like essentially, like we know the Australian running structure, like Craig Mottram's that trains the way Stuart McSwain does, trains the way that I did. And a lot of the time it comes down to talent, hard work and durability. But it's not a real, it's not the person with the, the most detailed breakdown of stats that wins. It's the person who a lot of the time seems to have the most relaxed or, or just simple approach to the sport that does well. And I think there's plenty of evidence of that in, in athletes and sports all across the world. But for, for yourself, I'm going to guess that that was something that was, uh, that's quite natural to you. Just that, okay, we're here to win. How do we do it the most easy? Um, is that something that you developed, like that, that win at all costs sort of mindset? Or was that just, that's just in your DNA? I think it's in your DNA and it's also, you know, I'm a product of my dad and, um, you know, my mum's fairly direct as well. But, um, you know, in sport, you've only, you, you have a limited time in everything you do and if you have that mindset where you worry about the peripherals, it's, it's going to hold you up in a race 
and even though we were out there racing for two hours, there were split decisions made, you know, from the first second to the last second. And it is very black and white. And it's also very cutthroat. So, you know, these days they talk about athlete well-being and um, I've been told by Triathlon Australia that I have an unhealthy relationship with winning and in the Olympics and gold medals and things like that. And I go, yeah, well, I'm an, Olympic, I'm a, I'm an elite athlete. So there are a lot of unhealthy relationships, obsessive relationships with things. And athlete well-being is about is not about saying, hey, you don't have to be like that because you do have to be like that. And if you lose, you fail. Mm. That's basically how it is. But the athlete uh, well-being is around making sure that the athlete can recover, can get to events, you know, is, is um, looking after their, their body that sort of stuff around mm. it um but it is very black and white things work things are some things are rubbish these days there's more data than anything in sport and in my sport there's more data than there ever has been and the sport has never been so poorly performing internationally than it is now yeah. so we don't even have a full quota at the olympics anymore so we were one of the we were the top nation in the world and it now has, the National Federation has now more government funding, more data and more experts. And we, we don't even, we're going to drop out of the top five nations in the world, which I find heartbreaking. And that's why I'm coaching now, because I've said, hey, guys, it's not that complicated. So, and they've said, mm, go and do something. I said, okay, I will. Watch this space. That is all. That that scares the shit out of me, Em, because I know that with your competitive <laughs> background, that they're in for a bit of a fight. So I will watch this space. And now that you've told me that, I'm going to watch it with a whole lot more interest than what I might have originally. So, but what is that? It's it's really strange that the the performance of a sport can diminish. And I know, like there's there's such an obsession with stats and data, and uh, yeah. I'm sure that you know better than I that there'd be so many triathletes out there that just obsess over that stuff and go come in the best form ever, but might not have that capacity to transform that that data through like a little bit of mental strength onto the actual racetrack come race day. So, like, but what do yeah. you put that down to, that poor performance? Um, you know, you said we're about to drop out of the top five nations for a sport we used to. I'm pretty sure you were on top of my Vegemite lid when I was seven, weren't you? Like there was, <laughs> it was a sport that was really celebrated. So I can't understand what's caused that, uh, that device in performance. I don't know. I just, you know, everyone's gone data mad and there's a place for data. Like don't think that I get out there and I just, you know, go for it um my athletes um have a lot more rest than i did and i don't think it's about training hard i think it's about um resting properly as well but for example i had an, an athlete um she was actually from india to contact me and say look can you help me with some coaching and you know i always ask some some background information on what they've been doing and a lot of rest days and i said you know, it's sort of, it's almost as if you've got rest days, like everything's designed around a rest day. And she said, oh, yeah, well, I use training peaks and when my training stress score becomes high, I take two days off. And I'm like, you do know that's an algorithm that someone's made up. Yeah. And she said, yeah. And I said, so if someone's made it up, they probably weren't even elite athletes, so they're just making it up. And so if you can smash the shit out of that, not get injured, keep training, you're probably going to train harder than someone else, which is what you're going to have to do to be the best in the world. You have to be better than someone else. 
you have to remain uninjured and you have to manage all that and it's a fine it's a fine tightrope walk yeah yeah she said oh, i never thought of that she said i just thought oh well i'll just stop i'm getting tired but you don't it's uh <laughs> days it's a... off are just wasted yeah, it's very interesting. I, uh, I I like looking at. I had Monaghetti on the podcast the other day, and uh, he's the second fastest over the marathon, obviously to to Rob De Casella. And you look at photos of Deke back in his day, and he was running with one of those watches that you would laugh. I'm pretty sure they sell them in all vintage stores now. It's just it's pretty much got the time and a stopwatch on it that I think after an hour flicks back to zero and goes around again. So it, it is amazing. Um, just that it, it's. I guess it's across many sports that there's an obsession with data and maybe a little bit less grip but yeah you're right so it has its place but just don't let the um don't go so data mad that you can't you can't stay tuned in with your with your own physical feeling i mean deeks if if he was an athlete around today all the experts would say no you're too big wouldn't they Mm -hmm. way too big nah but deeks was so mentally tough and another thing that i loved about deeks and i always ask him when i see him he used to believe, don't take a day off, but go for a massage run. And the massage run was about jogging slow enough that you're actually massaging your legs, but you're not taking a day off. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like he's cut from the same cloth as a person like you. Yeah, I've introduced that to my athletes. Okay, let's go for a massage run. And, you know, halfway through, how's the massage going? And I'm like, well, this is not a very good massage. <laughs> um, you've got to have a bit of deeps in your program that is so funny so it, it sort of leads me to an interesting question because obviously recovery does have an important part in your your training schedule and um in order to, and, and feel free to counter me on anything that i'm saying right now i'd love to be you're a far better athlete than i ever was so feel, i'm free uh, feel free to educate me but uh like the the idea of uh, the idea of taking rest days is is obviously key in in allowing your body to recover from certain sessions and certain spaces but how did you how did you like as opposed to your Indian friend who came to you asking for for mm-hmm. guidance on how to structure a training week around her rest days how did you adapt your or how did you incorporate some rest and recovery into your training like were there any signs that you looked out for to be like all right like this is where I need to just put the brakes on for a few days well back in the day you know you had the morning heart rate and um, we used to do blood tests um, every sort of six to eight weeks and we'd make sure that our levels were correct and things like that I'd always try and have sleep. Um, you know, a certain number of hours each night. But it, it is a fine line. And with triathlon, you've got the swim, bike and run. So you've got the three disciplines. So taking a day off, suddenly you might lose, you know, a disciplined training for that day. So, you know, quite often it, it wasn't so much a rest day. It was a recovery day mm. because, you know, riding your bike for an hour, I always used to have the theory that the bike was three times the run. So um, a three-hour bike ride is like an hour's run. So if you went and rode your bike for an hour, just easy, um, it was kind of like a Deeks massage run. (laughs) 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 So it was a recovery day. And then, you know, the swimming, if you could have an easy swim, like you might put your fins on or something like that and do a stack of drills. So it's not a complete day off, but it was was recovering, um, an active recovery day. That was sort of what I used to like to do um, but I mean rest days you, you did need them after races particularly so um, yeah it is it is sort of a question of, of how so some athletes that I coach for example they 
they don't have to work so hard in the swim because then they've come from a swimming background. So they have a lot more opportunity to rest because they're not really trying to get that that um, time in the pool in there. So it kind of varies on the athlete. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just through the back of my mind as you're talking now. It's just I can't stop thinking about what we we're saying with the uh, with the data as well. I'm looking back over a couple of the men's world records. I think um, uh, sorry, men's world records, men's uh, Australian records, and thinking back to Ralph Dubell ran one uh, ran oh, 1:44 yeah. back in I think it was Mexico, and then until fairly well until 10 years ago, Ryan Gregson broke Mike Hillard's uh, 1500 meter record I think, which had been around since the 70s, and then. Um, you know, up to the marathon, Deep broke that. I don't know what year that was. I reckon it was 1928. He ran 207. <laughs> it's gone back a few years now. No discredit. It's actually more a, I mean that as a brag and a congratulations to Deep than a, a, a spite. But um, yeah, it, it sort of fascinates me. I think I overestimated just how much um, progress had been made in a, in a lot of distances. And it, I guess it at least gets your, your, your brain ticking over just how much progress is made through an obsession with that. But I wonder, like with your with your athletes, how do you um, how do you manage that? Because I, I think I'm 34, and I know there's a lot of people my age who are running around at the moment who are who are obsessed with Strava, and it's fair enough if it gives you a little bit of inspiration to go out for a run, so you can post it. Well, I guess that's better than not going for a run. But when it comes to actually um, progressing your your performance, there's there's obviously a nice balance between. Um, the approach that people like yourself and Deke and Mona had to the sport and, you know, like a, a little bit of a conglomeration of, of those two facets. So so where do you find like a, a little bit of a middle ground with your athletes? So is there a middle ground? I guess it's quite individualised really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think you've got to really know your athlete and you've got to know where they've come from. So um, an athlete I'm working with very closely at the moment who I think will be the next great triathlete to come out of Australia um, Emma Hogan. <laughs> she's not the one racing right now as we speak, is she? Yeah, yeah, she is. Oh, well, she's racing in 40 minutes. Um, I only train and coach Emma's. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to sign up. <laughs> so she's come from a, um, she's from far north Queensland. She's got a racing age of two and a half, but she swam all her life as a kid. So she needed to learn or she needed to learn to bike and run. So her training program is very different to mine and the volumes that she's training are slowly increasing. But as you can, well, I mean, this is a running podcast. Everyone knows you increase running volume too much and too great. You're going to obviously break down. So Emma, she's, you know, she's been doing the, the um, Athletics Victoria track season, cross-country season for the past, I think this is her now her third season. And the progression is... It's sort of like, you know, as you, as you do, do as a junior, each year you can do a little bit more. But that's always the juggle of coaching. She's been very fortunate that she hasn't um, broken down with a major injury. Well, I'm not, not sure it's fortunate, but I've been really, really careful with increasing the volume. You know, she does that traditional stuff up here or down here of uh, running up at the Dandenongs on the Sunday. Yep doing 1K reps on grass on a Saturday. So it's basically a running program with swim and bike added. Yeah. So it's a very typical run program to get the running up there. And I actually think a a really, really good triathlon program is a typical run program with swim and bike added. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, so is that uh, like slightly reduced in uh, in terms of volume from your running or it's that amount of running with 
the other no, stuff. No, you reduce volume. So you you know the main sessions are Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Yep. Long run on Sunday. Emma's not built up to a semi-long run on Wednesday, but the Mondays and the Fridays are cruisier. Um, and you stick the bikes in on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yep. So Thursday becomes a really difficult day in the week because you've done your you know your intense Tuesday. You've done your bike ride and sort of longish run on a Wednesday. And then Thursday, you've got to get into your intervals again. So that's my other theory around practicing running off the bike. If you're training properly for triathlon, you don't have to try and get yourself fatigued because you're fatigued anyway. <laughs> like <laughs> if you're training properly for triathlon, you wake up in the morning and you never, woohoo, let's go training. <laughs> <laughs> I never really felt like that too often anyway. I think that's no, a, exactly. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. So, uh, like for for your own personal story, when when you were making that transition for from running, I know you said you had a little bit of assistance from people in and around the sport of of triathlon. But did it take you a little while to figure out how to incorporate that other work uh, in amongst the running training? Because I know it's it's strange in the running world or, or anything for that matter. When you're getting involved for the first time, you can get overwhelmed by details. You're not sure whether you're doing it right or you're doing it fast enough or slow enough or blah blah. Yeah, killed by details. Um, but was there like what gave you the confidence to to do the work that you were doing was it the fact that um you know you sort of knew how to structure your running training and you just you know wiggled around a little bit with the bike and the swim or uh, how did you come up with that program and, and commit to it well so my running was always going to be priority so I was always going to finish you know like the day was going to the running was going to be the priority so I kept my running program and I lived out in Eltham and Eltham's a very hilly area. And fortunately, the bike rider, the guy that I was working with, Harry Shaw, he was a, um, about 65-year-old, just, you know, one of those old sneaky bike riders that just taught you how to sniff the wind and where to sit on the road. He, um, he lived in Diamond Creek, so very close. And the, the hills around Eltham, um, Diamond Creek, St Andrews, King Lake, they were really, really good for just getting that fitness on the bike. So you don't have to do quite as much volume that way. So you can ride lighter gears up and down hills. You get yourself fit on the bike. You become more efficient because everything's up and down. Nothing's really, nothing's easy. It was always windy, dead roads, hilly roads. So you didn't have to do as much volume, but that was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday training session. Um, and the swimming was just... The swimming was a bit relentless, to be honest. That was Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, you know, adding the bikes and then adding the runs, it was just really quite a full load. But yeah. I just, like I said at the start, I didn't really worry about what I couldn't do or what whether it was right or wrong. I committed to it and I was focused on it. And fortunately, I had the mindset that when I want to do something, and I'd kind of worked that out quite young as a kid, doing athletics and doing AV stuff, I'd worked out that if I really, really got myself into something, I'd pretty, I'd do well. Yeah. And I really believe that I could do well. So that mindset just filters across to every element of your life then? It's not just sport? Well, yeah, and I just, you know, there's two rules in high-performance sport. One is to be fitter and the other is to know more. And so, you know, while I was learning about this sport of triathlon, I learned I read up on every athlete, all the history, all the races. Um, I found the World Championship 
had a um, it was over in New Zealand. I, I I found out that they had a national championships on the course, so I went over and raced it. So I knew everything that was going to face me, and so by the time it came to the race, I expected to win. So I did. So it's pretty like That's it's so pretty good. simple at the end of the day. How did um how, like I I really like your personality. I really like that um that idea of just hey let's just get it done and I'm going to win and that's a plan. But uh, I know that with some people that personality can be misunderstood as arrogance or it can be misunderstood as over competitive and perhaps it is um you know over competitive. I'm not going to say arrogant because I personally love it. But I want to know like uh, with the how did how did that attitude go amongst other competitors? Because I know myself like there was so often one of my best mates James O'Connor who listens to this podcast. When him and I were about 16, 17, we were best mates, and then it came to race day, and we could barely look each other in the eye because we were both so ridiculously competitive. I was probably trying to paint the picture that I wasn't as competitive as what I really was, but for him, there was just there was no shame in him just going, hey, this is, this is exactly what I'm like. I want to kick your ass today. And I just thought, man, you're a jerk. But he really wasn't. It was lovely. But I know that um, there were so many miscommunications, probably misunderstandings amongst so many people on that start line who just all desperately wanted to win but how did people take your personality and your approach to racing when you're uh, when you're at the top of your game well it depended on who they were and that that's you know whether you're arrogant or confident the, the people that call you arrogant don't like you and the people that mm. think you're confident they like you that's a great point actually that's a yeah. really good uh, uh what do you call um, it yeah, another word so that's great i've always believed that was the case and um to be honest i wasn't really a big i didn't really care um, that's always a problem when I don't care because I really don't care. <laughs> I feel like if you had to ask me the answer to that question, I probably should have known that you wouldn't. <laughs> and I, quite, you know, like when people hate you and you're racing them, it actually makes it easier. It really does. Because, you yep. know, like if, if they want to be like that, I've got to get this call. Oi, you go. I don't know if you have to edit that out oh, i'll edit that out i'll edit that out i was hovering next to the screen so you didn't feel like i was just standing there staring at you while you were having your chat but uh, <laughs> how's she going all right well she's just um she's young so she's 20 she just turned 21 um you know got a racing age well this year she'll be three and she's racing top girls so she has the, the ability to get to the next com games i think um but it's a question of that racing confidence how old is she actually 21 21 yeah i was gonna say it was misunderstanding i pictured this three-year-old at the start line it's like well she must be talented <laughs> no racing age of three yeah yeah awesome okay so how how long till her race starts um 25 minutes yeah sure i um yeah when you said uh when you said that you had to take that call for a moment when the phone rang i thought you meant we had to end it there which would it's fine if you got to no, go no, no, no. But um, no, I got I got confused for a minute. What were we saying before that? You were talking about hey, I love your point about the um, that difference between arrogance and confidence. It's so true that the people I dislike, I would just be like, hey, yeah, it's arrogance. But it really yeah. is a. So you were, I feel like you were midway through a thought on that, and I was really enjoying it. So if you can remember that, please continue. <laughs> well, I think I just said that I didn't really care if people didn't like me, and um, yeah, your competitors if. You know, if they don't like you, it makes it easier to beat them because mm, that's right. Yeah, what have you got to lose? They're not really in your life anyway. They're only there to be beaten. And you know, I'm a I'm an athlete who wanted the race to be about me, and maybe that's that selfish elite athlete mentality. But I didn't want to walk away from a racetrack and people talking about someone else. So I wanted them to be talking about me. Yeah. So to do that, I had to win. 
That's really interesting. I was listening to a great podcast this morning. It was a Joe Rogan podcast. I don't usually get into these ones, but it was a UFC, like a, a you know the ultimate yeah. fighting thing. Um, and he was talking to like a, a friend of his who was right into jiu-jitsu, and they were talking about the different types of ways that uh, jiu-jitsu players compete. And he was saying a lot of the times now that the best jiu-jitsu fighters in the world, they'll come into a ring and they'll figure out that strategically in order to win by the end of the round, they need the most points. Or by the end of the match, they need the most points. But what was different about this particular coach was the athlete he he worked with were very traditional in the sense that he taught them to fight to submission. So it might mean going out harder and working harder and potentially losing all your energy really soon and being beaten. But he said he's he had a bit of a prefontaine mindset about him that we're going to actually do our best to actually try and beat this person. So there was just no questions about who won that fight it was very clear that the other person was submitted you can't argue with that was that the kind of attitude that you took into the race when you when you say you wanted to be the one that was being spoken about it was like all right I'm going to just try and I'm not just going to try and beat you I'm going to try and destroy you yeah and it was all the time you know like because quite often you find yourself traveling with these athletes and you know you're on the same plane into the same location and um, I actually talk about this a little bit in my book so just to give you a little bit of a story, once I was checking in, and this is obviously before September 11, I was checking in, I was sponsored by Qantas, I was checking in Sydney, and the Sydney check-in staff were triathlon fans. So whenever you checked in, um, I generally flew business or first because of my sponsorship, and um, I was checking in this particular day, and I said, oh, you know, welcome back, Emma, you know. Um, the, fa- the plane is fairly empty with sort of, if you want to have a look at the, the um I wasn't going to say start list, passenger list, and um, let us know which ones are Australian triathletes and we can upgrade them all. And so I thought, oh, okay, you know. And then I thought about it. I thought, hang on, I've got to, I've got to race these people. So I thought, well, so I upgraded the men and not the women because I've got to race the women. And, you know, I never spoke about it, never told anyone, and I put it in my book. And, I, you know, a lot of people are going, oh, you're such a cow. You're one it. of those women. You're one of those women that holds other women back. And I said, no, no, this is a different scenario. I wanted them to turn up. and I didn't want them to be fresh because I've got to race them. So it was, um, you know, it, it was all the time, 24-7, the mind games, it was on. That is awesome. That is awesome. I really like that mind game side of things. So I, I feel like later in my running career, it was something that I tried to delve into a little bit more because I was just thinking, all right, I'm not going to finish up until I've, I always felt like I was consistent with the, like the, the discipline to show up, the discipline to put in the work, um, like really professionally in my approach. I was trying to figure out whether there was any other elements that might be holding, my back and, holding me back. And that mind game thing I was always interested in. I feel like it was a real knack to some athletes. They just had that ability that's a brilliant example of it. But have you got any other like any other examples or any other things that that might stand out as as like a something that someone or a lot of people might go, oh man, that's controversial. That was actually just you trying to get a little added advantage over your other competitors. Well, there were other things where you know, like on the bike in there was a particular race in um, I think it was a hilly course. Anyway, we're on the bike, and notoriously in triathlon, everyone saves their legs on the bike. And I don't really buy into that because if you can, if you fit on the bike and you have a hard bike, you generally have the fastest run anyway because everyone's, you know, their legs are tired from the bike equally. Anyway, this particular day, um, an American came up to me and said, oh, do you want to break away? And I said, yeah, okay. I said, tell you what, around the next roundabout, you go around first. 
I'll slow everyone up and I'll go around the corner like a Gumby. So I'll slow the whole field up and then I'll jump across, give you a whistle and we'll go. So she goes, yeah, okay. And then I thought, I don't really want her with me, but anyway. She wasn't a particularly fast runner, so I thought, oh, this will be pretty safe. At least it gets rid of the rest of the field. So, you know, went round the roundabout. I went round, you know, like 40-point turn around this roundabout. And she took off. I jumped across, went past her. By the time I got to her, I was going so quick that I just shot straight past her. And all I got from her was a gob full of, of anger. <laughs> So I just I just laughed so hard. And then I thought, oh, screw this, and I just kept going. So from then on, she would never work with me on the bike, and I was like, oh, well. Oh, yeah. So, like, I, you know, I'd that always awesome. do that sort of stuff, and I liked to be unpredictable. Sometimes I'd work, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I'd throw a spanner in the works. You know, like, it was... It was actually a lot of fun out there. It I sounds really like so that, much fun. It yeah. sounds like so. How long was your career in, in total? Like from the day you transferred across from distance running to the day you said, "All right, that's enough." Well, '94, I had a cardiac arrest, so that was when I stopped. Mm-hmm. I my performances dropped around '98. Break my foot in '99. Very very controversial omission from the Sydney Olympics. Yep. So. I suppose it was, what's that, 10 years, which is not very long. But I was very, very dominant. Um, My heart condition ruined my career, and that started to sort of emerge after only about four years on the circuit. So, you know, from 95, 96, 97, um, yeah, I I hardly lost a race. So it was a very – in that period of time, I won more races than anyone ever. So it was a very dominant <laughs> whack and then a really long sort of – I couldn't work out what was wrong with me until I actually had a cardiac arrest. Gee, so I heard you – this is one thing I heard you speak about with Brad on, on his podcast where you were, you were saying it's – and forgive me if I got the details muddled up, but what it's uh, essentially – is it a bit of a genetic thing because your sister's got it worse than you? Um... Well, they can't work it out. So when I was diagnosed – I have right ventricular right ventricular scarring on my heart. And um, that's at the time they were sort of discovering elite athletes just dying. Yep. And I was the first person to actually present as an elite athlete with this clear diagnosis. Before me, it had been male athletes in Europe. So I turned up an Australian female athlete (laughs) with the diagnosis. So they were like, oh, okay, that's a bit different. But since my diagnosis... You did say you like to be unpredictable. (laughs) Ten years later, my sister, Claire, she was... um, And Claire was a junior world uh, champion. So she's a very good athlete herself. Um, She was found floating at MSAC. So she had a cardiac arrest and, you know, she'd long retired. She was just mucking around. And um, Claire, she did a better job than me. She ended up two and a half days in a coma in the Alfred. Bloody hell. Yeah, she's got a defibrillator. And um, they can't find a genetic link, which is a bit odd because how can two sisters end up with a defibrillator and not have some sort of connection that they can't find a link? So either we've discovered something new or we've just done something really freaky. Jeez, so the opposite of what I said. It's not a genetic thing at all. It's the and there was something you were talking. know. Yeah, there was something you were talking about on that podcast as well, where you were saying potentially, um, 
and you're going to have to clarify, sorry, Em, but you were saying that there's a, you had gotten sick a couple of times or you'd had a cold and there was a potential that, you know, through training so hard through a particular illness could be the cause of, of what it is that you guys are going through. But still, it's a very specific scenario, isn't it, to, to describe what it is that you, you know, you both seem to have experienced. Yeah, well, that was the, um, you know, the sort of athlete well-being that I refer to that, you know, National Federation should really concentrate on, and that's making sure athletes are well. And um, in 96, you know, I was in the middle of my really, really dominant period, and I came back to Australia, and um, I caught a, what I thought was a chest infection. And, you know, took I think I took a couple of weeks off training, and I felt really ordinary. And then I had to go back overseas and race the world championships. And um, I remember um, I came second in that world championships and I threw my medal in the river and refused to attend the medal ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you were so pissed off you lost. <laughs> and I got a new reprimand because they said, where's, you know, Emma County? They called her up onto the podium at the um, awards ceremony and I was halfway across the Pacific in a quarters plane. <laughs> anyway, um, as it turned out, I didn't have a chest, in, uh, you know, a chest, I had a chest virus. Yep. So they think that that might have start, started the problem with my heart and it sort of manifested over time. Yeah, sorry, so, yeah. I, I, this is the one time in the podcast I shouldn't be laughing as you explain the serious <laughs> details, but I can't stop picturing you chucking your, your, your medal into the river. This has painted a really funny funny picture in my mind. That's, and that was that, a silver medal at the World Championships. That's what, what a bad sport I was. What well, river I, was I'm, it? Because I've got a really good scuba set and really keen to travel. The Cleveland River. Yeah, okay, it sounds so cold. The, river, the water pollution in those days, no one really gave a toss. I'm sure they every now and then they used to test the water. But that river was so dirty... We finished the race, and a couple of days later, there was a fire on the river. That's how much rubbish was in the river. That's unnatural. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> you shouldn't really burn water. <laughs> that's a really strange phenomenon. Yeah. Wow. That's um. That is a fantastic story. I feel like that could be the lead into this podcast because that's uh that's funny and paints a beautiful picture. <laughs> so, how many athletes are you working with at the moment? Not. Um, that's that's always a good question, and that's the question that Triathlon Australia always asks me, um, because they say to me, "Oh, you can't just work with one athlete, Emma." And I remind them, "How how many gold medals are there? Just one." Yeah. So, one elite athlete, and then I work with a number of um, age group and junior athletes, and I'm also working with World Triathlon on their development program. So, for example, I've got to do um, a pre-race sort of analysis for um, a group of juniors in Africa on Tuesday <laughs> and they've got a camp in Egypt and we're just, fingers crossed, the internet's working. Wow, I wouldn't have thought Egypt would have been the uh, the ideal training camp location or internet connection location. Yeah, I know. It blows my mind, you know, like, um, yeah, there's the development program touches all areas of the world and it's it's quite... It's quite humbling, you know, you, you're working with athletes that, you know, will rock up and their bikes, it might, you know, have five gears, but only two of them work. And you think, wow, this is really got to be creative here with their training. So, yeah. That is really interesting. 
how is you just mentioned triathlon australia and i have to ask without you mentioned your your okay as everyone in australia knows that he's interested in sport at all your very controversial omission from the the 2000 olympic games but how uh, how is that relationship going since that point is there a is there any hey let's see each other eye to eye again or is there a little bit of um all right it's it's me versus you i'm gonna i'm gonna make a prediction that it's the second one but please feel free to correct me well triathlon australia is um is a federation that has always baffled me it's a sport that australia should really really do well at and we did for a time there and it's now become such a complicated schmozzle Mm. and you know we don't have a national series that's properly defined we've got all these age groupers that love the sport with a passion and they're not involved in the same races as the elite and it's become disjointed um you know, international, internationally, we're not the, the nation that we were. We used to we used to dominate, and we're not going to have a full quota at the Olympics. So the full quota was um, three men, three women. We've only qualified two men, two women. There's a race on in Leeds in the UK tomorrow where Australia's sort of up against France to try and get another athlete in. So, you know, the last race they did, France absolutely nailed Australia. So it's kind of going France's way. So it's, it's, it's just puzzling because, mm. you know, all I want to see is Australian athletes do well and, you know, the, the lack of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like talking to a brick wall. So I've, I've got to the stage where I've said I don't really want to waste any more time on this because whatever's going on I don't really have time for. I'll just coach athletes that will represent Australia and do Australia proud. So it's... Yeah, the, the toxic nature is still there, but it, it's puzzling as to why. Yeah. What, what were they like during the um, uh, during the years? Like, obviously, 2000 probably would have been one of these years still where, um, you know, it was going to be a huge a huge one for you. But what were they like in the years leading up to that when you were, you know, as you, during that phase of just uh, more wins than anyone in history? Like, were they – I, I well, feel like they'd be silly not to get on side with you and go, okay, let's encourage her because no. she's making us look really good. Yeah, no, they were um, – it was it was a weird time and I've never spoken about it until I've written the book and the book has um you know I've had people from Australian sport very high up contact me and saying wow we had no idea this was going on we had no idea you were being treated so poorly and a a lot of it I didn't really I wasn't really aware of until I put it all on paper because I kept diaries throughout my career well throughout my life so it's very very detailed on the conversations and what was going on So we had situations where, you know, the head coach, one day the federal police walk in and arrest him. So he was arrested for misconduct with a minor. And there were a number of cases against him. And Triathlon Australia were aware of this the whole time. Uh. So it's that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I was one of the few athletes to go, whoa, hang on, what? And then I was told, you won't make the Sydney Olympics. So, you know, I, that, hopefully that era has gone. Um, and I, I do think triathlon will be one of those sports which, you know, we've seen it in women's um, hockey and, you know, we've, we'll see it in a number of sports. And I, and I think triathlon will be mentioned in, in future investigations. That's so interesting. It sounds like um, just classic, almost like big corporation 
behavior where we do our best to protect our own but it's it's weird like it's a weird little analogy that i've got in my mind but uh, hsbc bank in britain is we, we, me and my wife lived there for a couple of years and they've got the most horrendous banking system that you've ever experienced but because they're so big and they've been around they just seem to have everyone it's like everyone just tolerates a whole lot of bullcrap and it sounds like uh like the the triathlon the australian triathlon in in you know the situation that you're explaining sounds like they're protecting their own it's not necessarily neat it's not necessarily clean but it's just the way it is and because it's so established now no one can really do anything to chink the armor of you know what makes it what makes it rubbish i just don't want athletes now and in the future to ever have to go through what i went through Hmm. and um you know that needs to stop um pretty much like when scomo stood there and said stop panic buying you need to stop being idiots with stuff like these sporting federations. Yeah. And, you know, it, it will stop, but there needs to, they, that culture needs to go that, um, you know, if, because I'm a female saying this, oh, God, she's such a pain, she's so dramatic, she's such hard work, you know, that, all that stuff. Wow, that needs to yeah. Um, but, you know, I've got to the stage where if, if my athletes ever face this, I don't even think it will be reported back to the National Federation. It needs to go to the Anti-Discrimination Board because that is wrong and no one should have any time for it. So I, I feel really strongly about that. And um, I think it's, you know, my, my autobiography is, I think it's the first time it's been actually spoken to, spoken about and identified and the details put on paper. Yeah, you're a better so person done. than me as well because I heard you explain how you tried to put it through as honestly and as neutrally as possible and just let people yeah. form their own opinions. Whereas if it was me, I would have been like, hey, no, no, let me tell you my version of events. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's very touchy. So I've had a historian recreate, um, you know, my Olympic appeal. So it's not, uh, this is Emma having a whinge. It's actually, okay, you know, this is the hardest part in my life at that stage. And here's a historian who's recreated the facts. So it's not it's it's not a piece of me sort of soapboxing, and the rest of it is just a factual account of my diaries at the time, yeah. and it's um yeah I've I've had some board members at the time contact me and say well that's that really made me squirm to read I had no idea that was going on and they were board members wow and I'm like wow good governance guys far out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy. Look, I've got my eye on the clock. I know your other Emma is about to race and you probably go and want to watch the live stream, so I'm going to let you go. But, um, hey, really, really appreciate you coming on. That was a fun no hour. Worries. I always know it was a fun hour when the time just flies by like that for, for me. I hope it didn't feel like a drag for you. It was, uh, it was no, a really it was enjoyable fun. chat. That was good fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, of course. Awesome, Emma. I'll make sure I, uh, I read your book when I get it and also tag it in the, uh, in the show notes and on my website for anyone who, who's interested in, in getting a copy. So, hey, thanks again. And, uh, hey, good luck with your athletes. I'm looking forward to, to watching them progress. Yeah, and come on, Emma Junior, hey? It'll be a lot of fun. What's her name, Emma? Emma Hogan. Emma Hogan. All right, come on, Emma. Yeah. All right. Hey, we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot. Thank you.